on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I mean, the, the manifest creativity of women is everywhere, right? That women give birth, for example. I'm not saying men aren't creative. I think men are also fertile. Men are also creative. But the denial, the systemic denial of women's creativity is just so obviously belied by reality. I mean, these men want to become like even the ones who invented plastic, they imagined a world where we would be completely oh, free of having to rely on any natural elements and, and could just live in a plastic world that would be more colorful, more clean, this and that. They want to kill off this world and have a substitute world in which that they've made. And, you know, I'm not opposed to technology or innovation or anything like that. But if the underlying paradigm behind it is killing the mother and creating this artificial world because men can be said to have made it and then they can control everything in it, I think we're in a very sexually violent paradigm. What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Jane Caputi a professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Florida Atlantic University. Dr. Caputi's primary research is in contemporary American cultural studies, including pop culture, gender and violence, and ecofeminism. She's the author of many articles and four books, including The Age of Sex Crime, Gossips, Gorgons, and Crones, The Fates of the Earth, and Goddesses and Monsters, Women, Myth, Power, and Popular Culture. Her most recent work is Call Your Mother, a deliberately dirty-minded manifesto for the Earth Mother in the Anthropocene, which does fierce and mythic battle against the techno-hegemony of the age of man. In our conversation today, we explore the roots of patriarchy from a mythic lens. We illuminate startling perspectives on ancient stories, from Gilgamesh to the Garden of Eden. And we wonder, what might it take for civilization to come back into right relationship with the life force of the Earth Mother? lest she turn away forever. Before we begin, I wish to offer huge gratitude to my patrons, whose support makes this podcast possible. I don't accept advertising, therefore your help is vital to bring these important conversations to the world. Supporters also get access to bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes perks. Visit themythicmasculine.com and click Become a Supporter to learn more. As well, the Mythic Masculine Network is alive and thriving. It's an online community of artists, activists, and poets who are diving deep into the themes of mythology, ritual, culture, and emerging masculinities. Each week, we explore shared practices, online councils, exclusive film screenings, and much more. I'd love for you to consider joining. Head to network.themythicmasculine.com to claim your two-week free trial. And now... Enjoy my conversation with Jane Caputi. Welcome, Jane, to the show. Thank you. I'd love to begin by asking you to share a little bit of where you are in this moment, uh, physically, spiritually, um, any anywhere that that 
feels true for you to speak to. Okay. Um, I suppose uh, I'm in Florida, close to the ocean. So uh, it's warm. I was just thinking, I haven't even been outside today. I've been grading exams <laughs> and took a break from that to come back to this. And uh, feeling the color blue very prominent, as I often do, living near the water, which is important to me. So feeling good. Glad to be talking about my work and particularly this book. Thank you. In doing the research for this interview and, and certainly reading the book, I was really delighted by the uh, the amount of uh, richness I found in in what feels like your inquiry into the mythological as a framework for understanding, I mean, a lot of gender dynamics and um, cultural events and surges. And in particular, of course, culminating now in this recent book, uh, Call Your Mother. And before we get to that specifically, uh, I would love to speak a little bit about how you came to find this thread in your own life as, as or in fact, what is that that thread that pulled you? I understand you grew up in a fairly religious, uh, you know, household or upbringing and how that really activated you, you know, towards this inquiry. And so I'd love for you to speak to that first. Sure. Um, when I was a child, um, my mother had these books, Journeys Through Bookland, and different excerpts from world literature, but the whole first volume was on mythology, and it was European mythology. But uh, we also had some books on Japanese folktales in the house, and pretty much anything that had to do with non-mundane reality always interested me. I loved the stories. Um, I was always a very active dreamer, and I think I recognized the quality of my dreams as being akin to the mythological stories, and that I knew that this was a way of knowledge. Um, I always knew there really was a secret garden somewhere. There was that doorway that opened into the other world, and if you just had... And I still think it's true. I don't think it's a metaphor. I think that there is a reality to this other dimension that we call mythology, but... Um, that has great bearing on our world and our lives and that offers, it's probably the form of knowledge that our intuition has best access to, as well as imagination and creativity. But, you know, it behooves us to attend to that aspect, that epistemology, as well as logic or rational-based epistemology. I understand we also share um, some specific ancestry. I have Irish very strongly in my line, as well as uh, Catholic initially, uh, upbringing. And um, although my childhood, you know, my, my father and, and mother, I mean, they departed fairly early from that. Uh, at the same time, you know, my Irish grandmother is still very staunch in that uh, worldview. And um, at the same time, I understand with you, you found a kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, confrontation with the beliefs of the church and your own <laughs> your own uh, sort of feminist uh, arising. And I'd be curious to hear a little more about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my father particularly was a very strict Catholic. He was Italian. Um, but his mother, when I would go visit them in their home in Brooklyn, uh, they actually had, um, what was it? What's called a duplex, right? So they lived on one side of a house, again, near the water in Brooklyn. And in her bedroom, she had probably 40 statues of the Virgin Mary, roses, candles in front of each statue. So suddenly, all right, this is not really Catholicism, right? This is a kind of goddess reverence. And um, of course, that goddess, even though she's wearing blue and is 
in Christianity or Catholicism associated only with the sky. You know, I knew that this was something really major, right? And I would go up there as a little girl and just sit in the room. And so, but on the Irish side, um, my Irish grandmother would, and my aunt, who pronounced herself to me as a witch and told me she could remove warts if you gave her a penny and predict the future. And she really could. Uh, this is an aunt who was an identical twin born on Halloween and with a call over her face, this particular Irish aunt named Fritz. So she was certainly initiated me into some of the mysteries. And my grandmother would tell stories about Oh, the leprechauns and this and that. And, you know, still occasionally a leprechaun will speak to me, usually in dreams, but yes. So I think I got a little mysticism on both sides. By mysticism, a word probably without a lot of, but entry again into another epistemology, another way of knowing. I'm going to call it that so it's not obscured with any kind of, um, you know, stigmatizing notions that sometimes can go with mysticism. And how did this then dovetail or intersect with the feminist um, uh, side of your work and, and your sort of stepping into that realm? Okay, well, basically any kind of earth-based knowledge um, as well as that kind of, I mean, it. I mean, I grew up again in this Catholic tradition as did you with this idea of an all-male God, right? As well as torture, kind of sadomastic torture of the body of Jesus, right? I remember sitting in a church as a little girl looking up at this, huge 20-foot statue of Jesus on the cross and thinking, this is torture, right? This is not good. This is very alienating. And, you know, just going to Catholic school and seeing the kind of rank sexism with the different statuses of the nuns and the priests. And um, I was a rebel. I was always a rebel. You know, if you told me I had to do something or believe something, I went the other way. And um, I think I just experienced that very strong patriarchal reality at an early age. My family was a bit different. My father was, my mother was extremely strong and there were six girls in a row and then two boys. So there was, you know, you couldn't help, you couldn't pretend that men were superior to women <laughs> in that household. And my father really was not interested in doing that. He liked traditionalism, but not necessarily that. Um, I don't think he thought of his daughters as inferior in any way. So I had, you know, I had some help for that. But I, I think I just confronted the symbols of the world and realized that male dominance at an early age and it angered me. And I knew that it was something I would fight all my life. Hmm. And then that, that took the form as the, the first books that you ran? Or is it, did you, you know, head to university and then that became kind of an academic stream? I'm curious how that came about. Well, when I went to university, somehow... I just, I knew my, my father definitely wanted me to go to a Catholic school, but I found Boston College and you know, I was just looking through the book and I saw Boston College and I, boom, jumped off the page at me. I thought I'm going to go there. I didn't know why, except it was big. It was co-ed. It was in Boston. Yay. And I studied with Mary Daly. I don't know if you know her work, but um, another Irish. Uh, Mary Daly was um, a radical lesbian feminist who has written seven books. She had three doctorates. And she was a real heretic. She really denounced the Catholic Church and her first, her first radical feminist book. She wrote a book called The Church of the Second Sex when she was still Catholic, but that left after about 1970. And she wrote Beyond God the Father. And she wrote all these very radical books um, that not only denounced patriarchal religiosity and the patriarchal worldview, but that definitely, as she would put it, 
um, you know, invoked another world, traveled to this other world, created an alternative language and symbol system. We ended up uh, collaborating on a book together called Webster's First New Intergalactic Wikidary of the English Language. You know, Wikidary is a dictionary of words for wicked women who are wicked because we're in rebellion. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was big. That was very big. She was like the um, witch in the middle of the forest that you encounter in the fairy tales who maybe, you know, is very demanding, but it's an initiatory ordeal and you end up coming out from her, working with her completely transformed. So it was a great thing. Wow, I'm thinking of Baba Yaga as yeah. maybe she's often known. Yeah, yeah the, the German fairy tale Frau Trudy reminds me of her. Yes. And then how did that lead to, I understand you released a number of books, um, uh, and I'd love to for you to speak a little bit more about what were the threads that you were exploring in those books? Mm -hmm. My first book was um, about myth, but about a very different kind of myth, and that I looked at, um, I had seen that movie Time After Time, where Jack the Ripper travels through, through time to come to the present and thinks, oh, this is my world, they finally caught up to me. I think that's actually a line in the movie. So I looked at Jack the Ripper. I was getting a PhD in American studies as a forerunner of sort of the, in the seventies, you know, the Boston Strangler, the Hillside Strangler, you know, you would hear all about these um, male sexual serial killers who were all these white men who basically, you know, became folk heroes. They had this folk name, they had this allure around them. You started getting this kind of murderabilia industry built up around them. So I looked at this kind of, mythology in the sense of cultural narrative and aggrandizing hero status narrative around serial sex killers. And, um, you know, I looked at this kind of, I started thinking about, have you seen the movie Dr. Strangelove? Oh, that's the, the bomb fellow. Yes. Right? He's right. Yeah. That, yes. He writes the bomb at the end, but the madman general who initiates the world nuclear war is, is named in a joking fashion, general Jack D Ripper. Oh, wow. So I thought, oh, yeah, well, see, pop culture in this like little joke, again, this moment of intuition names a deep reality, which is that the same impulse that is murdering, mutilating and eviscerating. But in this case, the sex worker, the most stigmatized woman in London, Jack the Ripper, the killer who was never caught. Right. Um, and actually stealing the womb from one of his victims wow. um, is exactly parallel in this kind of ecocidal assault on the earth that is going on right now. And that was recognized even in that shared naming of the madman general and then of course the actual killer. And so from that point on, I think I was always looking at, you know, we call that ecofeminism, but I found it through this study of popular symbolism, myth and, and words, right? That language names that led me to this. Well, I understand then the next book was about the goddesses, or at least it was more explicitly. Um, and I'd love, love to hear about that. Yeah, that one, um, in the Wickedary, that one came out in 1993, Gossips, Gorgons, and Crones, The Fates of the Earth. And in the Wickedary, Mary Daly and I come up with like these um, names, mythological names, but really that are conjuring, you know, naming these kind of presences or energies that are beyond patriarchal reality, that are powers and forces such as the Gorgons, the gossip. And the gossip is one who, um, with the power of language, gossips wisdom. Like gossip didn't always mean bad, nasty talk. Gossip came from a, a word that meant God and siblings. So your gossip was like somebody you were really close to and you could 
have that kind of dialogue, which maybe, you know, I bet you have a lot in your podcast, where suddenly you're drawing out some, and you're finding some ideas and understanding. Um, there was a line in the Oxford English Dictionary, and she gossiped wisdom from the stars, right? So, wow, that's like from four centuries ago. So the gossip Gorgons and Crones were these three mythic figures who led me to an understanding of the spiritual meanings of nuclear technology and the building of the bomb. I was living in New Mexico where nuclear, um, nuclear everything was all around me. And at the same time, can I just say one more thing? Sure. Um, I, when I moved to New Mexico, like any typical white um, middle-class girl given a Catholic education, I knew very little about indigenous cultures, right? It just had been obliterated, erased as part of the colonizing process, erased from the curriculum. But when I moved to New Mexico and had friends, colleagues, uh, students, um, and I was imbued where I was like engaging with indigenous peoples and seeing, you know, being taught, sometimes called up, called to account rightly, um, that I had to really understand another perspective, another worldview. So I used a lot of indigenous philosophy in that book to understand what was going on with the nuclear, you know, the whole nuclearization of the world. Wow. Um, and somewhere in there, uh, I think you did a film about pornography. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think I saw either in the write-up for that, or maybe it was even in your new book, which we'll, we're, we're arriving at soon. Um, but I really loved this um, connection to this idea of the de, sort of the defilement or, or the uh, neg negation of sex and carnality and all that, right? It was lesser than the pure um, transcendent impulse of the church and how that, that in a way generates the pornographic uh, reaction. reaction or, or Yeah, so I'd love for you yeah. just to speak a little to that in that film, which I think you approached, which I didn't see yet, but it looked really powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I called it the pornography of everyday life because it was about a pornographic worldview, a mindset that you have to, before you have pornography, I mean, we should have access to sexual stories and representations and art, right? I mean, why why has sex been got, and, you know, gotten all this signification of evil and taboo and what Gail Rubin, uh, the queer theorist, calls sex negativity? But, you know, we might, Gail Rubin and I might disagree, though, because to me, it's sex negativity that then makes porn this sort of um, well, first of all, it's like homophobia and other kinds of, you know, misogyny. So you can't really show autonomous sexual being of all kinds of people, right? It's taboo and um, sinful or deviant or whatever they're calling it. But you have to have all this sex negativity to make porn interesting. There's all these like pro-porn people say, oh, porn has to be dirty. Well, dirt is the earth, right? And like it's only when the earth is stigmatized and our carnality is stigmatized and we have this ideal either of God or of the mind as being pure and transcendent and elevated, that then you have to create this, you know, you create porn. But what's interesting is, is that, which is obviously based on women being inferior and women being defined as the sex and as sex objects, but it also really reverses what you were getting on in your question to me, which is that you know, divinity or what we understand as divinity is very sexual, right? And that sexuality is a way of knowledge, whether it be dance or whether it be movement or whether it be actual sex and being naked, right, has been in many world traditions, again, a way of knowledge, a way of arousing certain energies and attaining wisdom, as well as the energy to go on with life. And um, that pornography does tap into that, 
But at the same time, it reverses it. Like the, the woman on her back with her legs spread is originally a goddess symbol. You know, you would find images of Medusa that way. And sometimes it's birth, sometimes it's orgasm, sometimes it's that we wouldn't be here unless she was continuously not only giving birth, but feeling ecstasy. Right? That's, that's why we're here. And if she stopped doing that, <laughs> we wouldn't be here. So it's an ongoing sort of rippling energy that's keeping everything going. And it, it is, it's a, it's a intellectual energy, but it's also a sexual energy. You can't separate them. I really appreciate that. I think you said, uh, sexuality is a way of knowledge. I believe you said, yeah, which I've never heard before. And I really, really appreciate that. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's so many interesting, um, you know, ways that, I mean, certainly that's in like, that's in like non-Western non-Christian religions. It's there. And that's one reason why colonialism felt so justified in calling them savage and trying to destroy them. You know, that's not, you know, they were nothing like what they were. They turned their religions into porn, basically, even though their religions, of course, were highly sophisticated, what we would call civil, you know, they're civilized. <laughs> the colonizers were not. Uh, knowledge systems. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm reminded of as you speak on this as well is, uh, as I understand in the Bible, at least, that the the same word for, you know, he knew her or something like that is also the word the word for knowing. Um, and maybe there was like a hint of that or a breadcrumb was sort of left behind. Maybe so. Yeah. I mean, maybe so. You know, I hadn't thought about that because, but, but, you know, and Catherine McKinnon is amazing with this. She's like a radical feminist legal theorist, but she says in Western patriarchal ideology, to know has meant to the F word. Can I, can I use the sure, F word? Yeah, yeah. To know, to know has meant to fuck again in the heteropatriarchal meaning to take possession of, to dominate, etc. You know, that that's what Western knowledge, you know, the whole method of like objectifying someone, you know, and someone could be the earth, an animal, you know, land, um, a corn, whatever, a human subject, a monkey, to objectify them and then basically try and torture them as a means or investigate them or probe them and keep them silent, right, as a way of getting knowledge. So that's like a model of sexual violence as a mode of knowledge. But But you're right, if you flip that, you know, there could be much more evocative understanding of the connection between knowledge and and um, intimacy. Mm. Hmm. Oh, well, that's even a great thread too, knowledge and intimacy. Maybe we'll bookmark that for a second. Um, and so this is no lead. I'm sure there's many other things you've done. I know you did another film on feminist voices for the earth and, and numerous articles. You know, I found one recently about Game of Thrones and all that. Oh, yeah. It was so great. <laughs> Um, and uh, at least in this moment, the, the latest offering is this uh, new book called Call Your Mother, A Deliberately Dirty-Minded Manifesto for the Earth Mother in the Anthropocene. Mm-hmm. Uh, excellent title. And Thank you. I would love to hear a little bit about how this book came about, um, right? And then, and then we can dive in. And I have a couple key kind of like groundwork um, pieces that I'd love to unpack first. But yeah, please, I'd love to hear the story of this book um, in its... Arrival, yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't even know the story completely of this book, but I mean, in this book, I've decided, I mean, I know I tried to like draw on everything I've ever learned in my life. You know, I'm, I'm going to be 67 in a week or so. And, uh, 
So that's a lot to, I mean, it, it seemed to like kind of just come together for me. And I was trying to bring it all together for that. But I was always interested in the MF word, motherfucker, right? And it's not my word. You know, the reason why mother on my title is in quotes is because I want to be very serious that I'm not trying to appropriate black English and act like it's mine. I'm trying to pay homage to the genius of black talk, what Geneva Smitherman calls black talk, and that there is profound um, philosophical knowledge, history, um, and uh, in some ways prophecy uh, in like words including words that we sometimes, that like the dominant culture characterizes as obscene. Mm -hmm. So I was always interested, like going back to the Jack the Ripper and Dr. Strangelove thing, you know, seeing the connection between outright sexual violation, possession, domination, mutilation of the woman's body and the earth body. And if you think of the F word in English, it means I want to make love to you, haha, or just have heterosexual intercourse with you, or I want to do you in, I want to finish you, I want to destroy you. Yeah. Right. Whoa. <laughs> How revealing wow. is it? about the sexual violence at the root of this culture, that the word means those two things simultaneously. And then you put mother in there. And mother is the source, right? All of us come from the mother, right? All of us are mothers, and I mean that. All of us have the capacity to mother. And we better, if we're going to be actual living beings, right? Be able to give give that back, that nurturing, that creating community, that leading. Um, so anyway, I thought it was such an interesting word. And I had gotten the first half that the earth was being motherfucked basically in ecocide. But then I realized that, again, in the genius of black language, um, the word flipped and started to mean something else in, in the 20th century. All right, let me tell you, am I going on too much? No, this, Can is, I go back? this is fantastic. All right, all right. I, I looked up and I started reading um, histories of black English, including this great book, Articulate While Black by Geneva Smitherman and Sammy Aleem. And they say in the black world tradition, the motherfucker has never meant anything to do, is associated with black English. It's never meant having sex with your mother. Where it comes from is from slavery. And that basically the slave master or the overseer had absolute legal license to rape any, any, any woman they enslaved and then enslave the children, right? And that this was not just, you know, an offshoot, a side angle of, of slavery. It was profit, right? You would create as many slaves as possible, and that increased your wealth. So the slave master who would rape a slave um, legally and then enslave his own children was not the father. He was the motherfucker. Wow, that really changes looking at the word. Wow. And... But then, so I call the Anthropocene, which is this age of, you know, the so-called age of the human or age of man, with some of its boosters saying this now, we can overwhelm the great forces of nature, we've attained such technical mastery and blah, blah, blah. I say it's not the age of man, it's the age of the motherfucker, right? Where this imagination of absolute, complete, you know, Eviscer evisceration, elimination, not only eliminate like the Earth's agency and autonomy, but then they substitute themselves for the mother and they say, now we have become God. There's even a book called The God Species, where these men who, oh, we've so dominated the Earth, now we've become God. But then the title of my book, The Earth Mother, Motherfuckers Flips, and Motherfucker becomes the best thing you can call somebody. It means a formidable and indomitable force. And that's because of the mother in it. So that's the power of the mother. 
And I decided, you know, they cannot overwhelm the earth. The earth is the power that can overwhelm them, and the earth is the ultimate mother. So that's what it's about. <laughs> wow. So many pieces. Thank you. Um, I would love to spend a little more time, a little bit more time as well with this Anthropocene and this age of man, because I, I do think in the book you, you are able to, you know, in, in quotations, you know, capital letter man. And I do think there's a distinction being made between men, let's just say, you know, man versus the age of man. And I would love for you to, to, yeah, spend a little more time there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, man obviously is used sometimes as human, right? And that's because of male dominance, where men are seen to represent humanity, but not women who have been defined from Aristotle, you know, on and others as subhuman. But um, Sylvia Winter, a decolonial theorist, says she uses the word man to mean um, an ethnoclass and a, a class based on wealth, as well as skin color, as well as, you know, social dominance, social capital, um, that has obviously dominate, but also overrepresented themselves as the human and judged everyone else, right? As like varying degrees of subhuman or not human. And so she really politicizes the word man. And I take her up on that, right? Because obviously, you know, it's, it's foolish. I mean, we have women who are man, right? I mean, we have some men who are not. We have a lot of people who are neither women nor men, right? Who's Lives have been erased out of imagery as we've only created this binary sex system where you have to be either a woman or a man, whereas none of us is 100% male or 100% female. I'm quoting Thompson Highway, the great creed playwright in here. And so, yes, this is man overrepresent themselves as the human. And, um, you know, we have to see through that. I really appreciate as well the piece you spoke in the book about you know, this kind of spell that I feel is talked about largely in this time, the spell of humans are universally enacting this kind of cultural dominance, right? This idea of like, well, you know, we're all, basically we're all in the same boat or we're all doing the same thing together and we all got to reconcile together. And of course, you know, dip into that just a little, of course, any other peoples that aren't doing that and they're going, whoa, 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 wait a second. You know, when did we become a we in which we're all do, quote, doing the same thing to the planet? Absolutely. That is so important. Like Anthropocene is so deceptive, you know, the age of the human. Like, what do you mean human, right? First of all, you actually mean man. And secondly, a lot of humans are being slotted for premature death, poisoning, right? You're in Canada, right? You know about like what the situation, particularly for indigenous people near mines, whose rivers have been polluted. I mean, it's, it's all over the world, right? And so basically, this is an environmental justice issue that there are many people who by virtue of, you know, marginalized social status in the culture are most set up to live and work and play and worship and die prematurely in places that are way more disproportionately subjected to environmental toxins and poisons. So, you know, the idea that all humans are doing this is nonsense. It's a small group, not, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a system dominated by a certain group of humans who are doing it to everyone else. And then saying, oh yeah, we're all doing it. You spoke about um, this kind of core mythology of the West, which uh, you know I've heard in different forums, and I, I would love for you to speak to a bit here. Um, particularly, you talked about the the sort of uh, I think it was the Sumerian myth and this the battle with Tiamat uh, as as a kind of like a foundational 
you know, aspect of the, the of civilization itself, or the, at least Western civilization. And I felt that was so important as a, a kind of mythological underpinning of where does this war on the mother, you know, begin without, you know, understanding that beginnings are always complex and all the rest, but that the mythological underpinnings here feel really important to speak to. Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, and this goes back to some research I was doing for Mary Daly when she was writing her 1978 book, um, Gynecology. I found this book on creation myths. And yes, there was a story of Tiamat. And since then, many of us have written about Tiamat. But um, I remember, and like in it, Tiamat is the primordial mother, but she's her name is like chaos, right? And she's got like, she's not fully human. She's serpentine, right? Which goes back to some myth that all of the world began in a giant serpent, right? But this is the mother, right? And she is not divided into the binary categories, but she is what is seen as chaos, like that original, primordial, formative, creative um, stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Of and which includes energy. Anyway, her grandson, who is this sky god Marduk, you know, goes to battle her and ultimately kills her in some ancient myths with his penis. Um, by blowing an evil wind into her mouth and then ripping her apart, a la Jack the Ripper, and forming the world from her dead body. So this myth teaches not only like the, the hierarchy of upper versus lower, Tiamat is the lower, Marduk is the higher, but that the world is dead. The world is now, the goddess is dead. You're walking around on all this dead matter and you can do anything you want to it, right? And... Um, you know, we see this myth played out over and over. If you've seen The Little Mermaid, look what happens to Ursula at the end. It's the story of the Medusa being decapitated, right? So this kind of misogynist myth being reenacted over and over, telling us that in order for there to be civilization, the mother must be destroyed. In order for there to be, you know, everything that we know. Yeah, go ahead, Ian. Oh, I'm just saying, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, when, when it's sort of nakedly able to be spoken, in such a fashion, it becomes very um, disturbing. Yeah, you look at some of these ancient images, Marduk is taking his sword and like plunging it almost like into the vulva of Tiamat, who's got a sun head and a serpent body. And I mean, this is the destruction of that, the mother, really. And you know, you look at it again, is the formation of patriarchal masculinity that the masculine has to like kill off Everything, you know, the man to become masculine has to kill off everything that is deemed by his culture to be feminine in order. To, so, you know, in like it, that myth is also enacted on that individual basis. And girls are supposed to kill off those powerful mother aspects of themselves, too. Yeah. Well, I'm really curious to examine as well, even the word patriarchy, right? Because I know that um, without this mythological underpinning, I think often what happens is, at least my perception, is that there's a kind of... Um, I don't know, surface sort of understanding that men are the problem and, and have always been the problem. And again, it's this sort of universal spell gets cast that, you know, it's always been this way or that been this way for a long time and that all men are sort of perpetuating this, um, but not from a, a kind of nuanced mythological understanding of what, you know, you're speaking to, I believe. And for me, at least, what I've found valuable is trying to understand or at least set up um what what is patriarchy from a mythological perspective right and and i mean i would venture to say that there's this relationship between the hero or at least that understanding of a hero as sort of slaying the the mother of chaos um as this kind of adolescent masculinity like that there seems to be some kind of immature 
war set up at the foundation of if that's what patriarchy is. And I mean, I'd just love for you to, to speak yes. to your understanding. Yeah. Yeah, there is. And like often the mother in these myths, like Gilgamesh, the ultimate adolescent, right? Who, you know, has to take down forests and striving for immortality, right? I can't die. You know, I'm so special. Um, he kills the forest daemon, Huawa, who, who knows the forest daemon's gender, right? Or if the forest daemon has a gender. But it is, the, you're killing the source. You're killing and pretending that you can substitute for the source. So the mythological origin of patriarchy, you know, what's interesting, Gerda Lerner in the creation of patriarchy, the great historian who went back to look at the origins in the what is now um, called the Middle East of what has evolved into Western patriarchy. There's different patriarchies in China or in Africa or South America or whatever, but Western patriarchy manifesting in the Abrahamic religions that, um, you know, it, it began with men, some men, right, obviously not all, seizing um, women's bodies, recognizing that women's bodies could be used as sources of wealth and status for them if they controlled women's bodies. But, um, you know, most of human history has been gender egalitarian. You know, most of what we think of as hunter-gatherer groups, you know, hundreds of thousands, hundred thousand years or more were gender egalitarian largely and certainly not uniformly male-dominant. But, but so, you know, you started this long process of building this, this patriarchy built on hierarchy that you had like these differing statuses that there were really, um, and, and including older, elder male dominated younger males, you know, young boys were subjected to some of the, some of the same abuses as women in, in many contexts. Women were divided against each other. But so Gertelunder takes us through all the steps of patriarchy, but the last thing to go was the notion of a goddess that you know all people had like understanding of of uh, an original like kind of goddess or the source um who was associated with the mother and there were even like talismans and amulets in the shape of the vulva right i mean the first experience of all of our lives right and um you know passage from the mother into this dimension and um that was the last thing to go and the substitute of this heavenly, completely removed from earth, Father God. So you have like not only the absolute erasure of female divinity in Western patriarchy anyway, the substitution of a removed, non-carnal, um, disembodied Father God. And you also have like matter despiritualized, dispirited, right? Like so matter becomes like, again, nothing, right? Matter there's no spirit dwelling in matter, which is the biggest lie of Western patriarchy, I think. Why do you think it's been so compelling? And I say that in quotations. Uh, that why, why has this system, as you say, if, if we were sort of egalitarian for so, so many years, you know, what has allowed it to persist? Like what was so compelling about it, you know, warped as that may be? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it worked to give, it, it, by setting up a hierarchy, um, you know, it worked in so many ways in that it pitted, most people are pitted against the people who are next above them in the hierarchy, right? And therefore not really worrying about the ones right at the top, right? Often sometimes turning them into cult objects of worship, a la President Trump or something like that, right? But, um, but it, it divided women against each other. You know, some women had privilege, some women enslaved other women, right? So women had a vested interest. It also gave women this bargain, you know, 
we'll protect you from other men, but you'll be dominant to the, you'll be submit, completely submissive to this one man. So it was a trade-off. So all these kind of people were involved in all these trade-offs, right? To like protect their little sphere, but ultimately help make the system work. Um, those trade-offs aren't working anymore in so many ways. Women are, and children are the biggest victims in any war, right? It's mostly civilians now. It's not like women are so protected now in that way, either from war or from um, women are realizing, are finally realizing, not finally, but we've known it all along, but it's becoming now into a political movement that the men most dangerous to us are actually those men who say they're protecting us, right? Wow. Most women are assaulted at home, right? And murdered by men who say they love them. And ultimately, all of us, our lives are at stake, obviously the most privileged, you know, the most removed from this. But as the earth is being systematically um, laid waste, in their quest for profit and possession and dominance. So the patriarchal bargain isn't working anymore. You brought up a phrase in the book, uh, which I think is the parallel to what's often trotted out is penis envy, that women have penis envy, right? Uh, but you speak about womb envy, uh, which I, I love and, and I thought it would be great to also unpack that a little of what, what exactly that is. Yeah. And I mean, Freud, of course, was generalizing that all women have penis envy. They see the superior member of a little boy and, oh, yeah, they fall victim immediately. And, you know, it's obvious nonsense. Um, you know, if anybody has penis envy, it's some men, right, who are so threatened, right? You know, Donald Trump had to stand up there and brag about the big size of his penis in the 2016 debates. Huh? Right? I mean, really? Who's got envy? Who's got, right? So, but, but you know, often... You know, it was Mary Daly who taught me this. You know, when you are analyzing patriarchal deception, you reverse it. You know, Adam didn't give birth to Eve. It was the other way around. She didn't come from his rib. He came from her vagina, you know, kind of thing. And um, there's just so many reversals like that. So Karen Horney, who was a student of Freud, and she proposed, you know, that men actually um, could have some envy of the procreative powers of women right? And that they were really covering this up. And I don't think it's true of all men, but I do think that some men in power, I do think it ultimately, I mean, the, the manifest creativity of women is everywhere, right? That women give birth, for example. I'm not saying men aren't creative. I think men are also fertile. Men are also creative. Um, but the denial the denial, the systemic denial of women's creativity is just so obviously belied by reality. Yeah. Um, and they do this because they, I mean, these men want to become, they really ultimately, if you look at their stuff, I don't know how, in the book, like even the ones who invented plastic, they imagined a world where we would be completely, oh, free of having to rely on any natural elements and and could just live in a plastic world that would be more colorful, more clean, this and that. They want to kill off this world and have a substitute world in which that they've made. To, to me, that sounds like womb envy. And, you know, I'm not opposed to technology or innovation or anything like that. But if the underlying paradigm behind it is killing the mother and creating this artificial world because men can be said to have made it, and then they can control everything in it. I think we're in a very sexually violent paradigm. I'm thinking of this line to the transhumanist movement now, and I know you do speak to that also in the book, of this, this really direct line, it feels like, between, I mean, Gilgamesh's quest to live forever and the current, you know, conquering death, death is a flaw, 
you know, uh, let's upload our minds to computers and, you know, let's head to Mars. Like, I see them as so connected to each other that it's just the same impulse. It is. Um, it is. And it's, it's, a de- it's so afraid of death, afraid of cornality, afraid of, um, you know, that's the fear of the Earth Mother, that the same mother who gives birth to you takes you back at death, which is really a gift. But it's all about refusing that gift. And I mean, you know, death might be really interesting, right? <laughs> I mean, who knows? Uh, somebody once said to me, Beth Stevens, who wrote, co-wrote the Ecosex Manifesto, um, I think death could be a blast. And I was like, whoa, you know, that's really interesting, right? But anyway, yeah, it comes from this, um, it comes from this almost kind of necrophilia, not like desire to have sex with corpses or something, but you want to like go into this artificial world because you're so afraid of death so that you actually create a kind of not death, but deathlessness and deathlessness is also lifelessness, you know, and that is really, and they're doing that as you know, ecocide is part of that because you're killing off like that energetic free flowing life force. Right. And so you're paving it over and you're putting up concrete, all these kind of permanent so-called things or plastic, which can't break down and rejoin the life stream. It's like a kind of necrophilia, but lifelessness, deathlessness. So appreciate that. I think I, I might've read this somewhere, but it really always strikes, strikes me is, you know, when you ask somebody, what is the opposite of life? The quick answer, most people in this culture might say is death, right? That death is the opposite of life. But like what you just said, the opposite of life is not death. The opposite of life is deathlessness. Mm-hmm. The unwillingness to die mm-hmm. is actually the end of life. So it is uh, it's quite powerful when one's able to really see that. Um, I'm, also, I'm also reminded of the book, which you might have read. I think it came out in the 80s, but Finite and Infinite Games. No, I never is that read that. Bill? No, yeah. He just talks about this idea of what's a finite and what's an infinite game. And he says that the rules of an infinite game are essentially to keep playing. Yeah. Whereas that a finite game is you play to win. And I feel that so much characterizes the dominant culture's, you know, obsession with, quote, winning against the mother. Uh, but of course, that causes the death of everything else in the process. Or, and the, like the, the cessation of the life force. And, you know, that's why I call the book Call Your Mother, because in the face of this terrible disrespect, right, this refusal of the gifts, gifts of life and gifts of death, gifts of um, carnality, you know, and I learned this from indigenous philosophies, that when you see all this destruction, you're not just, you know, man says, I am the most destructive, I am the most powerful, I can, you know, lay waste to everything. And like, they can, I'm not saying any taking anything away from their destructiveness. You know, they destroy rivers, they take down forests, right? They're creating global climate chaos, um, or polluting the air. But what we're really witnessing is that perhaps the life force is turning away from us, right? Like, you know, the the systems that keep the patterns that have allowed humans to exist and many other beings are changing. That's what climate change is all about. I mean, it's basically the patterns that have sustained human existence are changing. And if those patterns change, you know, we're gone. We disappear back into that chaos that is Tiamat, right? And without being even like our species continuing. And, and so I think we have to um, change our behavior. And I'm calling that call the mother, meaning, you know, realize like that we are not God, you know, not, I'm using that we, but you have to break out of this framework and realize like this isn't all just happening without our participation. 
that the mother demands, really, or it requires a return of gifts. We have to, one of my chapters is feed the green, a phrase that came to me in a dream once, that it's not just all this is given to us. We have to put our energy back in reciprocity. And again, that's key in all indigenous philosophies. Not that they're all alike, but that's a pretty uh, common theme. And we're not, I mean, people in the consumerist, the world that I basically live in, the consumerist, you know, world of a professor in the United States, you know, live a middle-class existence. Um, But anyway, we're not even being taught that we have to give back. There's like this like lip service to it, but no rituals, no actual understanding of how to do that. And that's what we have to, we have to call the mother. We have to return our energies to the source and really change our ways. Beautiful. Um, I'd love to bring in this inquiry into gender, which is such a, you know, it's such a fraught uh, place to be um, and contentious often. And, you had a passage in the book, which I really appreciated around this, a conversation that I feel I come up against a lot, particularly with um, those that identify more as feminist, as queer, as sort of outside the binary. And what I often experience, rightfully, is a, a kind of mm, contention with with and essentialism, right? With contention with gender mm-hmm. essentialism, which for the listener, if they're unfamiliar with that, my understanding is sort of, a sort of prescriptive sense of, okay, well, you know, all men are this way and all women are this way. And um, at the same time, I find that can be a bit incomplete. Like it sort of throws out a lot of um, what what I recognize when I speak to indigenous people, uh, their own ways of holding, you know, those, I don't know, maybe call them polarities or, or ways in which, you know, different ritual or ceremony has certain roles, you know, for, for different people. And so there's something almost about the 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 West's sort of reactivity to essentialism, which doesn't seem to actually, or seems to miss these other layers. And you had a great passage about this, and I see you nodding your head a lot. So I would love for you to speak that, because I do think it's a really important sort of mm, overlooked element when we try to contend with this uh, the problem of gender, you know, in this modern culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like listen to Berta Caceres accepting the Goldman Environmental Prize. She was the Honduran indigenous activist who was assassinated just a few months after making this speech and accepting this prize. She says, we must shake our conscience free of the rapacious capitalism, racism, and patriarchy that will only assure our self-destruction. The Gualcarque River has called upon us, as have other gravely threatened rivers. We must answer their call. Our mother earth, militarized, fenced in, possessed, a place where basic human rights are systematically violated, demands we take action. So I quoted her in an academic setting, and I was told, oh, that's being... You know, when I talk of Mother Earth, they tell me I'm being essentialist. And like people would probably just dismiss her as talking about Mother Earth. I'm I'm missing your point a little bit. But essentialism, what I've learned, as you say, from indigenous people is that the way the West describes a polarity of opposite male and female. And if you're born with certain anatomy, you're male and you're masculine. And, you know, with others, you're female and feminine. Not only ignores that there are many people who are either physically intersex, spiritually, two-spirit, you know, that it's not that fixed. And also that, you know, the West has created those binaries and those essences as a way to justify a top-down hierarchy, masculine over feminine. But Vanessa Watts, who is indigenous from Canada, she wrote a piece that really influenced me, saying that that's part of colonization because if you destroy our ability to talk about feminine, the feminine and the land, 
you know, you are really destroying relationship with the land. And I can't say I know exactly what she's talking about, right? As this is not my, you know, um, I was not brought up to understand that philosophy, but I think I know what she is talking about. And Paula Gunn Allen explained to me about, she was, um, her mother was from Laguna Pueblo, um, and she wrote a great book called The Sacred Hoop, um, The Feminine in Native American Traditions. And she describes the feminine, the masculine as a subset of the feminine. Like we are all feminine, right? You know, everybody is feminine. The masculine is a necessary subset of the feminine. It's not all there is, right? There's other, perhaps even other subsets, right? Or combinations. But um, we are all feminine. And, uh, and that, that's a very different way of understanding it. So I tend to like look at it that way. And maybe that's an essence, but without any essences, what would we have, right? If we didn't have the essence of hard things and soft things, and I don't mean, you know, just, <laughs> uh, we have to have some essences, but you know what they call a perfume? A volatile essence. Because like when you smell like the essence of like lavender oil or something, whew, goes out through the air, it's volatile, Right. And I think of like even gender as a volatile essence, right? In, in that it is moving, it's alive, it takes various forms, but that ultimately we are all part of a larger feminine. I really appreciate that. Um, I had an interview with a fellow named Bayo Komalafe a little while ago. He's a poet um, from West Africa. And he, he said a phrase which still rings for me. He says, uh, masculinity is a strategy. Hmm which I, I really liked in the context of what he's saying as, as maybe like a volatile essence, let's say, that takes different shapes and forms depending on the conditions and the culture and the, the sense of how it fits within the larger cosmology. Um, and I guess I, I recognize, I think, in what you're saying too, that there there is a value for using these terms masculine, feminine, or at least that's, that's my understanding too. Because I do see a move in the uh, often gender sort of activism, this kind of, well, let's strip it of all gendered language at all and maybe if we want to talk about these energies we we can use yin and yang or like active passive or things like that but to me it just feels like again it's losing some capacity to to speak to or to be in relationship in a more meaningful way yeah i mean i think what vanessa watts was getting at is that like sky woman fell to the earth and became land so you have to speak about the feminine and the land so I know that I don't fully know the answer to the question that you're posing right now. So right now, I'm willing to like hear everybody on it. You know what I mean? You know, I believe in self-definition. I mean, some women define themselves as masculine, right? Jack Halberstam has a book about that. So masculinity nor femininity is not solely the property of people who, you know, have been assigned male or female at birth, right? And so many, I mean, I, I'm interested in self-definition right? Because we've had all these definitions imposed on us. So I want to hear what people are saying right now about how they define themselves in terms of gender. And I think it's expanding. Like that's why the rainbow in one of my chapters, I sort of get into the, the, the gender meanings of color, right? And how the rainbow, obviously a symbol of um, LGBTQ culture, right? But it's also a symbol of like that rainbow of genders that is ex so expansive and like really can take you into another world, you know, somewhere over the rainbow and all that. And so. 
in the research for this interview, uh, I found uh, an interview you had done about 20 years ago for CBS, PBS, an interview you had done for PBS, uh, where you talked about the origins of, of violence against women, uh, and a powerful interview. And uh, there was a particular piece which I was, um, pre- you know, want- wanted to speak to about, which was your. She asked you about Robert Bly uh, and I guess the mythic, mythopoetic movement. And I'm curious to know, you know, that was about 20 years ago now. And um, my interpretation of what you were saying was, you know, you appreciated he was turning to the old stories and trying to grapple with a lot of these issues. And at the same time, it felt like there was um, sort of a maybe an unconscious sort of patriarchal misogyny still buried within the the stories um you spoke about you know him or the, the story the the protagonist winning a princess and, and these kind of you know s- sort of classically objectifying uh, motifs and again that was a while ago and i wonder since you know how has that changed for you do you still feel that way particularly about that particular stream or surge of the mythopoetic and i asked this too because you know i've done a lot of research in you know, Marion Woodman and Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And I would say now, you know, I'm a younger, just about 40 now, and I discovered this kind of wave back in, you know, about five or six years ago, you know, around 35. And I was really kind of um, confused by where where was this in my younger days, you know, because it was sort of like this whole movement went underground for a bit. And, you know, I've talked with others from that time, Michael Mead and many others that have spoken to why that they think that is. Um, but I will say there is a surge again, I feel, of the second wave of youngers, particularly men, kind of picking up, you know, the sense of, oh, wow, there's stories can be really valuable to grapple with these things. And it's sort of looking different than it did, you know, because of the, the change of the culture and the context and, you know, what we learned maybe then. And so, again, I wonder if it looks different to you now, um, the value you might see in it. Um, yeah, what, what's true for you on this issue now? Well, you know, I have, I'm, I'm glad you're telling me this because I, I haven't really thought about it as much, right? I mean, there hasn't been a successor to Robert Bly, has there, in the same way that has broken through in a big way to consciousness about that, right? Yeah, not really. I mean, I would say that the kind of archetypal lens is still very active. You know, this King War magician lover, that, that sort of Robert Moore treatise, you know, that was there. Right, Michael right. Mead. My, but Michael Mead turned from a kind of explicit masculine inquiry. You know, he's very much also about ritual and, uh, and story and myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I would like to learn from you and others about more about what's being said. Um, you know, I still see any kind of masculine mythos like that has to like defeat or conquer or attain the princess in one way or another as problematic, right? I mean, I'm, I'm always going to see that. But um, I would, I would absolutely agree that we all need these kind of stories to help us find out who we are and. And to, you know, help us find our path, our name, our self-definition, etc. You know, when I, I teach a class called Sex, Myth, Power, Popular Culture, and we do talk about sort of like that the, you know, we looked at like Black Panther and Star Wars, right? That is a sort of typical hero, right? Refuses the call, then goes. But Black Panther really resolves differently, right? I mean... Yes, he wins in violent combat, which I think is problematic and patriarchal, right? But at the end, he decides we have to stop like certain kinds of dualisms. We have to achieve. I don't remember his speech before the United Nation at the end. Chadwick Boseman, of course, terribly now deceased. But he makes a, a, a speech in which he says we have to stop this kinds of you know, oppositional dualism that have been going on. That, And he doesn't quite relate it to the gender polarities that we have, but it's there. 
And it's a very different kind of ending than just like I've blown up the Death Star and now I get the princess to give me an award, right? So if I were thinking of, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting question you pose. And I would, now I'm going to start looking for like the kind of stories that are out there that are conveying, even sometimes just with hints, that other kind of much more fulsome path to a non-patriarchal man story of, of man. Yeah, I love I love this turn also to pop culture because as you say, you know, for me as well, my background in, in university was media studies too. So it definitely is mm. sort of my jam. And, uh, you know, I was also struck by uh, your Game of Thrones essay where, you know, the, the turn of the main character, one of the main characters, of course, Daenerys, turns on this massive rampage in the city and uh spoiler alert you know if anybody hasn't seen it yet but uh is killed by Jon Snow her her partner um in a sort of um necessary quote necessary uh um uh what's the word not suicide sorry necessary femicide yeah <laughs> yeah. Nece- yeah thank you necessary femicide um and I mean, I think a lot of fans were disheartened by it. It seemed to be. I mean, oh, I thought yeah. there was this big, there was this big thing about like, wait, re- do, redo it, just redo it. Let's just not, you know. But um, there is something too about these grand myths that are told in the culture, and and where do we end up? Um, and and is the possibility of ending somewhere different? You know, like uh, these misses keep happening. You know, um, I think uh, Avatar as well. The curiously, you know, the first one, which um, I understand he's working on the next two, but. I was really disheartened when the final uh, scenes of that one, there's still a bit of this sort of last of the Mohicans kind of, uh, you know, the, the white savior, at least in an avatar body or Navi body in there. Sure. But there was a um, miss. I feel at the end when the sort of conclusion was, okay, we're going to kick out the colonizers really. Um, And, you know, I'm sort of waiting to see, okay, well, obviously they're going to come back with like bigger tanks and bigger guns or something. Right. But there wasn't a kind of true, sense of wait a second you know it's not about winning in this sense because winning just means they'll come back for more um so you know at one miss the last thing i want to say and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this which i feel was deeply fundamentally different was moana which i hope you've seen by now the disney mm-hmm. sure. yeah yeah which i thought was for me was one of the most significantly different endings that i've ever seen in a mainstream film of which again spoiler alert but the the evil in this case was uh, the goddess Taka, I believe, who was um, sort of posed as a kind of a protector, right, a uh, demon for the the hero and Moana to kind of return the stolen heart of the goddess. Um, turns out, of course, that actually it was the hero who stole her heart that actually turned her into the demon in the first place. Uh, and Moana ends up actually, you know, healing the divide by what I would make the, the interpret as sort of making contact, not defeating. And there was something so powerfully... Uh, mimetically different in that. And I wonder, again, your thoughts on on how that affected you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Now, that's the film we end my sexsmith power popular culture class with. Okay. And when I first saw Moana, I felt the same way you do. But, I have to bring in a but here. Sure. I started doing, of course, some research on it. And I found a lot of criticism from South Pacific Islanders, right? Uh Who said, this is so colonizing and distorting of our mythology that it's really a problem. Um, So they said, you know, Maui is so sacred that he's not usually depicted. And he certainly doesn't look like, you know, sort of Western stereotype of the overweight, you know, wisecracking guy. You know, that's not it at all. 
that um, we have a goddess, Pele, who is like the goddess of fire. And, you know, she's never been, that's Hawaiian mythology, right? That she's not anybody who's like this kind of figure, right? Um, and that Disney came in and just sort of appropriated our sacred stories and turned them into this, mm. um, you know, vehicle that is going to generate a lot of plastic that's actually going to hurt Moana, which is a word for ocean. Okay, so I was like, whoa, I really have to, you know, we have to educate, you know, we always have to like go and, and seek these out, especially if we're part of the Western world that has this habit of appropriating. Um, so, you know, and so my stu the students and I like really look at this and ultimately what I, and like some of them, were, but we loved it so much because it didn't give us that, you know, finite game. Somebody wins, somebody loses. Actually, it told us that we had to achieve integrity, you know, to, to do this. But the, what, what struck me as, like, obviously, it's Western colonization that caused ecocide in the Pacific Islands, right? Not Maui. So that was a big problem. So we all have to acknowledge that. And that was left out totally. But, like, I think Moana is a story to heal the Western problem, yeah. right? It's about the murder of Tiamat and pretending that you can kill her off and not suffer disastrous consequences. It should have been told as a Western story. That's yes. what I think about. It's a story about what's wrong with this culture. And wow. that's the, I mean, it took me a long time to think this through, teaching the film twice <laughs> to two different classes. Yeah. Ultimately, it's, it's a story of like, because the other film we show in this class is Clash of the Titans. And of course, Percy is killing Medusa over and over again, right? But Medusa is immortal. We all know about Medusa. And um, anyway, it's it's basically, that's the, you know, killing Tiamat, killing Medusa. That's a story for this culture that you have to heal. And Perseus is the trickster there who has to be understood not as the hero, but as, you know, the problem who has to resolve. And he could look Medusa in the eye and actually turn to stone. And that means returning to the earth, the earth, you know. And, and permanent your real relation to the earth i'm going on and on here but <laughs> sorry i think i mixed that up a little too much but you know it's it's all about the fear of death it's all about conquering the mother that's a story for our culture realizing the only way to heal and to to bring western culture has suffered the image of the good woman and the bad woman the dark mother nature who's bringing us death the good mother nature who's bringing us the green and life and they are the same being it's our story to heal that split wow it makes me think of, uh, uh, in some ways, the West needs a kind of exoticizing uh, lens or, or a kind of, you know, vector to order to tell that story, to think that it's actually not about this culture. Yeah, um, but of course, it's this but that's culture. The, the spell. Yeah, deal with your own shit and name it as your own shit. <laughs> <laughs> Returning to the West again, you had a really great uh, unpacking of what God means in this culture or what divinity means. And as a kind of mm, universalist uh, projection uh, that, for example, in in this general, say, modern Western understanding of God, he's like omnipotent, all-powerful, uh, is sort of um, vindictive in some ways, and that that itself is held up as that that is divinity. Yeah, and there, there's this great kind of phrase that you say, well, this isn't the de facto understanding of divinity around the world, but rather uh, psychopathy. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I just, I was really impacted by that. I'd just love for you to speak a little more to that. Yeah. Because, you know, I was reading about, my first book was on these serial sex killers and many of them 
or their commentators regaled these guys as God, right? They either left notes saying, I am God, you know, or mass killers like the Columbine killers, etc. They're all calling themselves God. And I list a bunch of quotes for that, including some not so well-known men who murder or who abuse women who then say, I was God and she was, you know, blah, blah. And then I looked at all these like technocrats and gurus like Stuart Brand and others or, you know, boasters and boosters about the Anthropocene saying, man has become God, blah, 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 you know, or it's also that sort of post-human kind of idea. We're going to become gods. And we already are as gods. And I thought, you know, this isn't, they're talking about a God, you know, a model of God that is like a psychopathic model, right? Of this all powerful, all seeing, infallible, perfect and removed, right? There's many other models for divinity, right? That, and that are being erased in that. But the, the God that I think I was brought up to believe in, I think is a projection of, you know, the ego of man. Right. I mean, it's this and all this energy gets poured into it because, you know, it's not that God made them. They made that God in their own image and then they play him for a while. And now they're saying they're actually becoming him. And that is a terrifying scenario. Mm -hmm. You added, uh, I think, a little bit later in the book, this understanding of the story of Genesis, not as the story of the beginning of life, but as the beginning of heteropatriarchy. Yeah, that's what it is. That, that nevertheless claims itself to be the beginning of everything, but it isn't. Yeah, yeah. There's something too about, uh, you know, I really love in these conversations when what I would call them, um, what surface are unthinkable thoughts. And by that meaning, you know, maybe thoughts I haven't thought of, which are many thoughts I haven't thought of before, but I really, um, I believe an unthinkable thought basically means for me, something outside of the culture conditioning in which you're allowed to think. Right, and so I hope for the listener as well that they've maybe had a few of these experiences so far. Uh, and and again, I say this very specifically to a certain audience, which again maybe a degree of, you know, the water we swim in uh, makes certain thoughts not allowed. Uh, of course, many other cultures, many other peoples um, have had these thoughts many times and directly experienced the consequence of uh, others not thinking these thoughts. Um, but I really want to just highlight that 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 the. Ability to do that, I think, is is vital in order to begin to kind of shake free from the kind of, you know, haze of this is the way it is. It's always been this way, you know, forever and ever. And uh, things are great, you know, double down to the moon and, and Mars and the rest. So uh, I just want to say I appreciate so much um, your capacity to bring that forth, um, you know, in our in our conversation. Well, thanks. I mean, I will say one thing that call your mother appears in a series on heretical thought. <laughs> so, uh, but I also want to thank you because, um, you know, sometimes when you're getting interviewed, it's more combative or something like that. And, and, you know, that's, that's not going to lead to that kind of thinking. I don't think, you know, it's again, that sort of finite game. And I found you to be this just really, um, you know, creating an atmosphere that really draws out, um, draws out, good thinking and good conversation. So thank you. And that um, just takes a certain kind of um, egalitarian view of the world. Wow. I really, I take that in. Um, I would love to end our conversation today uh, where you end the book actually, which is uh, a dream and a leprechaun. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. That was such a powerful image. I thought and the way that you unpacked the word, which um, I would love for you to leave us with today. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, the last little coda in the book is called Gather and Vote. The book begins with invocation and ends with, you know, invoking the mother, you know, the name of the mother, and uh, which is a ritual naming. It's like conjuring a presence and convocation, which is a gathering together. And it came to me. I mean, yes, earlier that day, I had driven by a bar called the Irishman, and they had this little plastic leprechaun out front. So I had seen this image. But that night, I dreamt that I was in, it was Bandelier National Monument in New Mexico, where it was cliff dwellings of the ancient Anasazi people. And I was in one of those little rooms dug into the side of a cliff that were people's houses, um, originally, way back when. And um, suddenly a hole opened up in the ground. And this stone, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, I guess, I don't remember. But anyway, this black stone appeared, you know, about three feet high. And I, as I looked at this stone, it started to shift and move. And then suddenly it became this being, this little leprechaun. And I said, oh, hello, um, my name is Jane. And he said, my name is William. And I said, oh, thank you. May I ask you a question? You know, very polite sort of. In exchange, which I think is important because we have to have etiquette with all the other beings, all non-human beings. And um, and I said, may I ask you a question? I said, everything. And this was, you know, back in, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. I go, everything is so scary. And, you know, the world is scary and everything seems to be, you know, dangerous. Can you give me any idea of what we should do? And he said, the problem is, is there's too many, too much scattering. You need to gather and vote. And with that, right down the hole, back into the earth, and the ground sealed over. And I was like, whoa. So I woke up and I thought, well, gathering, I kind of get, we have to gather, including overcoming all the splits, like between the masculine and the feminine, up and down, all those hierarchical splits. We also have to gather as the basis of all social movements. But voting, I thought, is that just about going to the polls and voting? Which I do think is very important. <laughs> but I looked up vote, and it comes from the same root as the word vow, and it means like, it's like a devotion, like devotion. See the word vote in there where you affirm loyalty and you give gifts and you, you know, you, um, and you know, that can be in a bad way. That could be a, to a cult leader. So everything is ambiguous, right? Everything gets ambivalent. I mean, it could go either way. But if we recognize that we, our planet is ourselves, right? We need to be, you know, not to, I mean, the, the being that we all are in permanent, inescapable relationship with and to whom we do owe devotion is Mother Earth, right? That's not a cult. That's not arbitrary. This has to be. And to, to be devoted also means to bring a gift. So I think we need to gather and vote for Mother Earth. And that means, you know, coming together. And it's, it's not just like a little... The story is the story, right? I hope it moves us. But it means support indigenous people in um, decolonizing, right? And supporting treaties. It means working for environmental justice, right? It means real active in all the ways that we have our lives and our activity, whether it's doing podcasts or mothering or, you know, whatever kind of work we do. So it's a real active devotion. But it's also ritual coming together and what we might think of even as prayer to the earth. Well, Jane, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you, Ian. This was great. I really appreciate your openness and listening. And um, I guess to do a podcast like this, I mean, you cultivate a kind of, for lack of a better word, I don't like the word, but, you know, a kind of humility and openness, which is like 
you know, I'm willing to hear what you have to say, which is great, you know? And so thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please visit any of the major podcast platforms and leave a review. This helps spread the word and reach a wider audience. And if you were stirred by the themes and ideas, consider joining the Mythic Masculine Network, our online community that is diving deep into the realms of culture, ritual, and the mythopoetic. Visit network.themythicmasculine.com to learn more.